Amen. Well, you can open up your Bible to Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. Luke 23, verses 6 through 12. Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 12. That's where the Lord has us in his providence this morning as we make our way verse by verse through Luke's gospel. And we have quite a lot to learn this morning. And I hope that you'll be encouraged that you'll also be challenged, uh, that you'll be changed, and that God will just continue to um, uh, transform you into the image of, of Christ through his word this morning. So let's go ahead and start by reading the verses that we have this morning, verses 6 through 12 in Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> it says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Now, what a passage. And I mean, this is just continuing to amaze me as I walk through these scriptures and see the progression of this narrative. And it should amaze you. This is true. This is historical. This is accurate. This is the actual account of the death of the Son of God and what led up to that death. And God is giving us the details of this through the writer, Luke. I mean, this is amazing. You can know what went on, what happened, what it means, and you can have all the details. You don't have to be unaware of this, and this should inform your understanding of the gospel and should absolutely change your life. And so what we're seeing in this particular passage, this section, these verses, verses 6 through 12 of Luke chapter 23, is stage 2 of Jesus' civil trial. This is stage 2 of the civil trials. And here, Luke is once again stressing Jesus's innocence, that he is innocent. That is what's being stressed here. That's what Luke is laboring to make known through these verses. This is stage two of the civil trials, and Jesus is indeed innocent. Now you might say, why is that important? Well, it is extremely important. And we'll get to that in a moment. But this is stage two, civil trial. And this civil trial will now happen before Herod. Herod. So I've entitled the message, The Trial Continues, Jesus Before Herod. Because that's exactly what this text is showing us. And remember, this is stage two before the Gentiles. Stage two before the Gentiles. But really, this is stage five of the unjust trials. We're really in stage five, but we're in stage two of the trials before the Gentiles. Okay, so as I mentioned last time, and you can go back and listen, and I encourage you to do that, that stages one through three were the illegal trials before the Jews, before the Jewish authorities. Remember, there was Jesus before Annas, Jesus before Caiaphas, Jesus before the Sanhedrin, all of which was unjust, 
all of which just manipulated the situation, manipulated Christ to get the verdict they wanted and get him to the Gentile authorities. This is then stage four. Last time, last week, began the civil trials, and that was Jesus, or two weeks ago, Jesus before Pilate the first time, and that would be his first hearing before Pilate. And so now, stage five, or stage two of the civil trials, Jesus before Herod. Stage six, Jesus will go back, and we will see Jesus before Pilate once again to get the final verdict, and then it's over. Jesus will go to the cross, and he will die. The sentence of death will be secured, and the Lamb of God will be unjustly slaughtered at the hands of lawless men. That's the progression here. Now, last time I also mentioned as we followed this narrative that since the arrest, we got some big-time players here. We've got some authorities of the Jews, and we've got some authorities in the Gentile realm. We've got the Jewish authorities, we've got the Gentile authorities, and they're all here. And we briefly introduced these opponents, and they're all part of this rigged game of getting Jesus to the cross, to his death. We had passive Pilate, passive Pilate, who just wants to keep his position of power, who passes Jesus off, and who is unafraid to stand for what's, or who is afraid to stand for what's right? And remember, passivity is ultimately rejection of Christ, and is also will result in judgment. Don't think because you're a passive about Jesus that God will somehow understand because you were maybe not aggressively opposed to Christ. Passivity to the claims of Christ is rejection of Christ. And so then we have today, Herod the hedonist. He wants the spectacle of Christ. He wants the pleasure. He wants the enjoyment. He wants what he can see with his eyes, and he will go get whatever he wants to satisfy the lust of his flesh. We'll talk about him today. We got the jealous Jews. They're banging on the proverbial door of, uh, of this house that is, they want to fall. They want Jesus to go to the cross. They're jealous of him and his power. They want the position of, of uh, Israel. And um, they're just going to kill Jesus because he's a threat to them. And then we have superficially sorrowful Ju Judas. And we talked about him. He's already played his game and he's now out. Um, and so today we're going to learn more about Herod. But today, these are the opponents. And they're all going to suppress the truth because they're committed to, them sin, to, their, to their sin. They're going to think only of themselves. They will be used of Satan, and they will unjustly kill the Son of God. Sin, self, Satan, to kill the Son of God. And now you have to understand this. They are those who suppress the truth. They are those who, the truth is apparent. They are aware, and they are suppressing the truth. You say, well, I don't, I don't know. How do we know that? Well, that's because that's what the Bible says of all unbelievers. They have a knowledge of God and willingly suppress the truth. So when you go to share your faith, when you go to share the gospel with your unbelieving neighbor, and you do so in love, and 1 Peter 3.15 says you do it with gentleness and reverence, and you have a holy life, 1 Peter 3.16 says, so that your conscience, when they, uh, your conscience is clear. They can't say anything about your holy life. And when you go and, and, and proclaim the gospel, you give an account for the hope that is in you. To the, to the lost world. One thing you must know for sure is that who you are speaking to, they are not neutral. They are not a neutral party that you are um, helping to um, move out of their neutrality. The Bible says that that is not true. An unbeliever knows the truth of God because God has put it in them. They have a conscience and they can see and they willingly and, and by their own decision and choice suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says about every unbeliever, every unbeliever. There is no morally neutral person. 
You are helping then by the scriptures to compel them, to call them, to turn away from their sin and to believe Christ. You might say, well, they're believing the philosophies of the world and, and they're neutral. They just don't know. No, they do know they're suppressing the truth and you have to call them, plead with them to forsake the ideologies and worldviews of this world and what their psychology has told them or their parents have told them or this, the TV has told them. And you need to help them to repent of that and come to submission to Christ, the knowledge that comes through his word. There is no moral neutral person. They are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's a morality issue. And so these, this is what they're doing. This, these Jews know that he's the Christ. Pilate knows he's innocent. Herod knows he's innocent. Judas knew that he was the son of God and they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so throughout these trial narratives, Luke is highlighting these things. Now, let me tell you some things again that he's highlighting some other things through these narratives. He's highlighting the sin of these opponents. He's highlighting the injustice of these trials, justice, which God loves dearly is being neglected in these trials. He's highlighting again, these opponents, these rejectors of Christ who want to eliminate the threat of Christ in their lives. But listen now, listen closely. More than all of that, more than anything else, Luke is highlighting here more than anything throughout all of these trials since the arrest in the garden through Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and now Herod and then once again Pilate before he goes to his death. This whole trial period, Luke is stressing something very, very particular more than anything else. He is making sure to establish Jesus's innocence. That's what's being highlighted throughout all of these trials. He is making sure, Luke is, he is taking every opportunity to make sure and establish Jesus's innocence. That's what's happening. That's what Luke is stressing. That's what he is making clear throughout all of this. Jesus has not committed any sin, any spiritual sin, any religious sin against God ever, nor has he committed any civil crime ever. That is to say, he's not committed any sin against God and he's not committed any sin against man. He's not sinned in the immaterial world. He is not sinned in the material world. He has not sinned spiritually. He has not sinned physically. Throughout all of this, Luke is emphasizing Jesus's innocence. He is the sinless, spotless, innocent lamb of God. And this is so important. So important. Only, listen now, listen close. Only an innocent Spotless, blameless sacrifice could die as a substitute to atone for sin. Anything less than a perfect, innocent sacrifice would be an illegitimate sacrifice and would not be accepted by God. Its death wouldn't be as accepted as a payment for sin. And the death of that so-called sacrifice then would be meaningless unless the sacrifice was sinless, innocent. And so this is so vital that Luke establishes Jesus's innocence here. A guilty sacrifice would need to die for its own sin first and therefore would be rejected by God. God could not, in his mercy, accept a guilty sacrifice as a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. You see, listen now. God, in his mercy, in his mercy, established a system to where an innocent, 
sacrifice could take the place of the guilty party, that's an act of mercy. That's just mercy. God says, listen, you deserve to pay for your sin, but I'm going to allow a substitute on your behalf if that substitute doesn't need to pay for its own sin. That's just an act of mercy. You mean, God, okay, I I had no way out of this, but you're going to allow a substitute here? That's just mercy. But in the mercy, God has to uphold his justice. He is not an unjust God who, who is tolerant of sin. He's one who must punish sin and uphold the pure holiness of his, of his being. So he will allow, an, uh, allow a substitute, but that substitute can't have to pay for its own sin He's got to uphold his his justice so he will punish that substitute for your sin on your behalf, but he has to be one who has no sin to pay for on his own. He could not serve as a propitiation unless it was innocent. Remember, God established this at the Exodus. You can avoid God's judgment through the death of an innocent substitute. This is what was remembered during the Passover, and this is what would be fulfilled in the death of Christ. And so God, in his mercy, allowed for this to happen. The replacement must be innocent or else the replacement would have to pay for its own sin. It would not be free to serve as a substitute on behalf of anybody else. Luke is deliberately showing and taking time to emphasize through all six stages. Listen now. Luke is showing us all six stages to emphasize throughout all of this sentencing that Jesus is not guilty. This is so important. This is so important. The last thing that Luke will show us before Christ's death is Christ's innocence. The last thing he makes sure to take time to show us before Christ is killed is Christ's innocence. This is, this is vital for him to show before Christ goes to the, de- to, to the cross. So God here, Christ is not guilty. That's not why he's being killed. That's not why he's being sent to the cross. We are seeing this in every point of the trial. It's not because he's actually guilty. On the other hand, God is sovereignly handing him over to lawless men. Christ is innocent and willingly submitting himself to the Father's will, surrendering himself over to lawless men who will illegally, unjustly sentence him to death in order for God to sovereignly accomplish his plan of his son being a substitute for sinners to accomplish salvation. That is what's behind this sentencing. It's not Christ's guilt. Now listen, Christ's innocence, listen now, must be in the bedrock of your Christology. You must, what you believe about Christ must include his innocence. Luke here, remember what Luke said in chapter one? He is establishing an orderly account for the reader of Christ's life and death. That's what he's establishing here, an orderly account. In other words, he's saying, the gospel's true. It's true. Let me show you through this writing that the gospel is true. Look at this. He lived this life. Look at this. He's innocent of all sin. Look at this. He died as a substitute. You understand? This is all true. Luke is showing us through this narrative that the gospel is true. That's what the gospels are. (laughs) That's what they are. They're a a recording of the truth of the good news of Christ. And he's establishing all of this. And so in the bedrock of your faith from this particular passage, you must establish that Jesus Christ is innocent of all sin 
And you must believe this. Now listen, this is so important because what you believe about Christ is the most important thing about you. That's the most important thing about you. What you believe about Christ is the most vital, important thing about you. Because what you believe about a biblical basic understanding of Christ, without it, there's no salvation. You don't have right relationship with God. You will be separated from God for all of eternity. What you believe about Christ is the most important thing about you. Your belief in the person and work of Christ will not only then lead to salvation, but it'll lead to your sanctification. It'll lead to worship, holiness, obedience, evangelism. You want to know why some of you don't evangelize? Because you don't think highly enough about Christ. You might not even truly believe the truths of the gospel. Why you're not on fire for worship? Why you're not in tears over your love for Christ? It's because maybe you don't believe what the Bible says about him. What you believe about Christ is the most important thing about you. And maybe some of you in here today, have you lost sight of Christ? It's easy to do. It's amazing. It can be done even while working through a gospel on Sundays. Every Sunday for, I don't know, what are we in? Four years now? Through Luke? You can miss Christ through the good news of Christ. (laughs) You can focus on other things. And even in our reading right now, our two weeks for two years, you're reading through Mark, you can lose Christ even while reading about Christ. Christianity, you can have a Christianity that ignores Christ. What happened to the days when you were on fire for Christ? What about those days? Where are they? What about the days when you had tears because of what the word of God said? What about those days when you were full of joy because you loved Christ? You were satisfied in Christ? What about the days that you would weep over your lost neighbor because you want to see them saved? What about the days when you would come in here and, and like the disciples, you say, did our hearts not burn within us when we heard the word of God? You were just eager to come in on a Sunday morning, sit under the teaching. You, you were tunnel visioned. You don't care how long this took. You just wanted the word of God. What about those days? This past week, Bo and I and Jonathan started praying every day for an hour before our day ever started in his office, on our knees in his, in his office. And uh, even before that, it was here with Dakota of Dakota's here praying on our knees here in this front row. And this is what I was praying for you. Lord, set them on fire again for Christ. Do you wake up and spend an hour in prayer with Christ every day before your day even starts? Maybe that seems impossible. Can I tell you, if you would just start, you would actually find more rest in that place than you would outside of that place. Just getting started is the hard part. What about the days when you would share your faith? The days when you were on fire, the days when you had tears, when you loved him, when you would proclaim him to anybody, when you had zeal, when you would storm the gates of hell and be fearless because of your commitment to Christ, because of what you believe about Christ, because of what the Bible says about Christ. Those are the type of people we need. Those are the type of people you need to be. You need to be in prayer every day for an hour. You need to wake up and read his word. And if you don't, you just, you can't even function. You'll stay up late at night to do it if you missed it in the morning because you can't move another moment without it. 
In Revelation chapter two, that's what I'm reading through in my own time right now. In Revelation chapter two, you know what he says? He's writing this letter to all these, to the seven churches that are still on earth. And he's, this is just taken very literally. He's literally speaking to them. And he says, listen, here's what you're doing. And he writes to this first church and he says, you're standing for my name. You hate false teaching. You're standing against those who claim to be disciples and are not. All of this, I love that you're doing that. You need to be strong in that. Don't back down in that. You hate the evil deeds, this false teacher, that false teacher. You hate all of that. You should. But here's one thing that you're lacking. You've lost your love for me. Repent. Now let's do both of those things. Stand for the truth of God's word and be in love with Christ. That's who you need to be. What you believe about Christ And your commitment to Christ is the most important thing about you. And what Luke is doing here is he's creating an orderly account so you believe in the person and work of Christ, biblical Christianity, that you're saved and then you're sanctified through this truth about Christ. And here he's establishing Christ's innocent, who makes, which makes the gospel true, that an innocent substitute has taken the place of sinners. He is not guilty. So with the time that we have remaining, which we might have to make this a two-parter, we're going to see the trial continue. Herod, Jesus before Herod, and Luke will make Christ's innocence plain. Listen now, listen. Luke will make Christ's innocence plain. It's not that hard to see. This is actually pretty straightforward and simple. Okay, we're going to see Luke makes Christ's innocence clear through just three points. Pretty simple. Number one, the transfer. Verses six through seven. The trial continues. What do we see in the trial? Well, the transfer, verses six through seven. We see the trial itself, verses eight through nine. And we see the treatment, verses 10 through 12. The transfer, the trial, the treatment. Six through seven, eight through nine, 10 through 12. Okay, it's pretty clear, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but pretty profound, and it should change you because it's the word of God. So let's read these verses, six through seven, chapter 23. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Luke here is the only gospel writer who records all of this account with Herod. He's the only one out of the four who records this account with Herod. So we're not going anywhere else. We're here. This is the one account of Jesus before Herod. Pilate here has a plan to escape his dilemma. Remember, the Jews are upset with him. They're mad at him. They have... uh, they, they want him to do what they want, and, and he's going to get out of it. And how? He's going to absolve himself of responsibility by deferring his decision about Christ to Herod. He's going he's gonna to maneuver politically here. He's going to avoid the threat of the Jews to accuse him before Caesar. If Pilate were to release Jesus, the Jews says, we're going to bring you to Caesar, and, and you're not a friend of Caesar, and you're going to lose your job, and you'll be killed or or uh, punished. So he's going to avoid the responsibility. Remember passive what? Passive who? Pilate. He's going to avoid this by releasing Jesus to Herod. He's going to avoid making any decision. He's going to maintain his position, power, and popularity. This is a political maneuver. Many people decide this about, uh, treat Christ this way now. They say, I'm just going to defer so that I don't make anybody mad. Right? I'm going to defer. What do you believe about this? I'm just going to defer. What do you believe about Jesus? I'm going to defer. And I'll just stay neutral so that I can maintain my position before people. That's not how a disciple acts. So Pilate releases Jesus to avoid responsibility and to maintain his power and popularity. Remember this? Look at verse 5. 
This is the verse before our current section. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Remember, when Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with this man. He hasn't done anything wrong. The Jews, they won't have it. They're, they're, they're yelling out. They're saying, no, 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 no. He's stirring up everybody from even Galilee all the way to your front door, all the way here to Jerusalem, all the way up northern Israel to all the way down southern Israel. I mean, across all of Israel, he's stirring up everybody. You, you've got to do something about this. In John's account, he says, you know, they threaten that he's, if, they don't, if he doesn't do anything, he's going to be opposing Caesar. And so Pilate then in verse 6, because of what they said, says, oh, wait a second. He's from Galilee? Okay, all right. And uh, he says here, verse 6, he asks is if he's a Galilean. And uh, Galilee is in northern Israel, and, uh, and so they're essentially saying that all of Israel is being stirred up, and, um, and uh, so Pilate now finds his way out. He says, oh, he's from Israel, and um, I mean from Galilee, and verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, which was Galilee, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate was in Jerusalem, and so was Herod during this time of the Passover, and, um, and so Herod's there, and now Pilate gets to send him over there. So Herod was also in Jerusalem at this time, and uh, Pilate heard this. Uh, he heard that, um, that he could send, that, that Jesus was from Galilee, and, um, and Pi, uh, Herod was at a place called the Hasmonean Palace, which was about 10 minutes walk from where Pilate was now. So he's just going to send this whole massive crowd over to Herod so Herod could take care of it. And uh, this was pretty frequent for a, a ruler to transfer one prisoner over to uh, another ruler to be tried. And you guys remember this probably because remember Festus was the one who replaced, uh, uh, who, who um, if you don't know this, Festus was the one who replaced Pilate as the Roman governor of Judea, and, um, and he brought Paul's case between, uh, before another member of, of the Herod family, which was Herod Agrippa II. So you can find that in Acts chapter 25. So this was common. You, you know, you're going to take one, a prisoner and bring him over to somebody else and to see what they, what they say about him. But Pilate here is not doing this for, with objectivity in his mind. He's doing this to his own advantage. And so now Herod, he, brings him over, he wants to bring him over to Herod. Who's Herod? Well, listen now. Herod is the tetrarch of where? Of where? Galilee, right? He's the tetrarch of Galilee. Text tells us that, uh, that he is being sent there because Herod is in charge of Galilee. Now, I'm gonna, I want to help you understand this, okay? You've got to understand this, this background. I, I want to give you a a summary here so you actually understand what's going on. If you read this text and you don't know what, what the background of the information of this text, which we call historical theology, um, you're not really understanding this text. So I've got to help you understand this text in order for me to be faithful for explaining this to you. So we're going to go on a, a, just a, a couple minute journey here. Luke, turn to Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three. Remember when we read, when we went through Luke chapter three a lifetime ago? Luke chapter three, starting in, um, let me read verse one to you, okay? I'm gonna give you this, this background here, okay? Luke chapter three, look at verse one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness and so on. So this is pretty clear. Listen now, you want a summary of who was in charge during Jesus's life? It's right there. What is it? I mean, these are all the players. This is a summary of the Jewish and Roman leaders during the time of Christ. And just very plain, very clear, all right? This is, okay, who's Caesar? Who's Caesar at this time? Verse one, Tiberius. 
Who's the governor of Judea? Pontius Pilate. Who's the tetrarch of Galilee? Herod. His brothers are also in charge of some regions. We've already heard about this. Who's the high priests during this year, during this time? Annas and who? Caiaphas. Okay, you guys got it. It's pretty simple here. This is the background, right? And so let's focus in on Herod for just a second. This is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the what? Great, okay? And so this is the Herod that is here at this time. So listen now. Here's the background. Caesar Augustus, he reigns um, until Tiberius Caesar, right? Caesar Augustus, um, his, uh, he reigns until Tiberius Caesar takes place, and that was about 14 AD. So I want you to just look back at chapter 3, verse 1 for a second um, of Luke. It's in the what? The 15th year. If he, started, if he started his reign, Tiberius Caesar did, in 14 AD, roughly about 15 years, were about what? 30, 30 AD. Now look down at Luke chapter 23. This is about right because look at Luke, Luke I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Same chapter, look at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about what? 30 years old. All right, we're tracking here. We got some clarity. Okay, it's about 30 AD, right? It's 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. He took the reins in about 14 AD. We know who the rulers are. We know who's in charge. This is about the time when Jesus starts his ministry. He begins his ministry at about this time. So, Tiberius Caesar, he's in charge. Pilate's the governor of Judea, which is the region of Jerusalem. This is the southern region of Israel. That's who Pilate's in, that's what Pilate's in charge of. It's kind of divided in two. You had Pilate, and then you got Herod up here in the Galilee region. So you have southern, northern Israel. Pretty clear, okay? And so, listen now. Herod has some brothers who I'm going to explain in a minute. We just saw that, right? But this is the Jewish leadership the high priests, Zanus and Caiaphas, we know those guys, and we have the, the uh, Gentile leadership, okay, which is, which is Herod and uh, Pontius Pilate and Tiberius Caesar, okay? So this is all that was going on. Now, Herod the Great, remember this. Let's, let's focus in on Herod. Herod the Great, he was the Herod at the birth of Christ, okay? Just turn for a second. Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Keep going here. Matthew chapter 2, okay? This is the, the Herod. Matthew chapter 2. And, um, and you, can see, you, you can see this information here. Now, about after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, that's Herod the Great, okay? And uh, you can see that what happens. Because Herod the Great, he wants to uh, kill the, the, the children, because he hears about this prophecy. Look at uh, um, verse, uh, verse three, just kind of going slowly through it. When Herod the king heard, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests, scribes, and people inquired where the Christ might be, right? Verse seven, summon all the wise men. And I set them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child when you found him, bring him to me. Right, he's lying here. He wants to kill all these, the, the children because he wants to kill the Christ. Look at verse 13. So when they departed, um, they went, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared. And where did Jesus and his family flee? Rise and go to where? Egypt, right? Because um, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him, right? And uh, so Herod's tricked. And send, uh, jump to verse 19. When Herod died, an angel said to this family, hey, look, come on back from Egypt, right? And, um, but then one of Herod's sons, look at verse 22, Archelaus, he was the Herod then over this southern region of Israel. They didn't want to go there either because this man was evil. So they went up to northern Israel. That's why Jesus would, be, would grow up in northern Israel, uh, Galilee. Nazareth. So listen, this is, this is how it all worked, okay? So Herod the Great died when Jesus was, 
was uh, in Egypt, right? And when Herod the Great died, he divided his kingdom three ways. There was Archelaus, which we just read about, who ruled over Judea. That's the southern region. And he was evil. And that's why when they came back, they didn't want to settle in southern Israel because Archelaus was still there and he was, was going to kill the baby too, right? And so they chose to go up to northern Israel. Um, to, it also fulfilled the prophecy, Nazareth near Bethsaida, um, Chorazan, right? And Archelaus... Um, he, he ruled there. Then you had the second son. Listen now, Philip II. He ruled over the northern regions of, of uh, is, uh, Israel, um, the region of uh, a portion of Galilee. And then you had this third one, which was Herod Antipas. He's in view today. He's the third son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great divided up all his kingdoms to, to his son. Now listen now, um, all of this is pointing to the fact that this family is, is evil, Archelaus. When we saw him in Matthew chapter 2, right? Um, he's the reason why Jesus and his family didn't settle there. Um, and by the way, he, replaced the, um, he was replaced by the pilots in the southern Israel. So there's a reason why Pilate hates the Herod family, because the Herods messed up in southern Israel, and so they replaced them with, uh, the, the Romans did with these with pilots and pilot, this pilot who we see today is, is the fifth pilot. And so, um, so there's a reason why the Herods hate the pilots because, uh, they took their place in Southern Israel. And so by the way, this is vitally important because Herod Antipas, who we're talking about today, he had the area of Galilee. He is the Herod that we talk about for the rest of the Gospels. All of the Gospels talk about Herod Antipas, except for this birth narrative. So if you ever see this, you're saying, okay, we're talking about Herod Antipas after the birth narratives. And again, he's the Tetrarch of, of Northern Israel, and uh, he's evil as well, okay? And so here's what we know about him. Listen, Herod Antipas. Matthew 14, he murders who? Do you know? John the Baptist. This is Herod Antipas we're talking about now, ruler of northern Israel, one of the sons of Herod the Great, the tetrarch of Galilee during the, the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 14, he murders John the Baptist. Um, why does that happen? Well, here's why it happens. In, in simple terms, he's going to visit his half-brother, Philip, and uh, he takes Philip's wife, who's also his niece. He has an affair with her. Her name's Herodias. She leaves Philip. Antipas divorces his wife. Antipas takes Herodias as his wife. So this is adulterous and, and uh, incestuous. And then John the Baptist comes and calls out his sin. And then Herodias, the evil wife, wants John the Baptist's head. So this gives you an understanding of who this Herod Antipas is, okay? Um, and you can see Herod's Antipas towards, uh, his attitude towards Jesus. Before Jesus ever gets to Herod Antipas today in this text, before he ever gets there, we also know his attitude towards Christ. How do we know that? Well, because there's two other occasions where we see him refer to Jesus. The first is after John the Baptist is killed in Matthew chapter 14. Let me just show you this. Matthew chapter 14, turn there, turn left from where you're at in Luke's gospel. Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse three. For Herod had seized John, bound him, put him in prison for the, you know, for his, the sake of um, what happened with, with uh, Philip's wife. And... Um, and so, uh, verse 13, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from that place um, to a desolate place. And, um, and so what we see in this, even throughout this, is that because of this situation, um, uh, Jesus hears about this. He withdraw, withdraws from this place. And now you have to understand that Herod knows that John is one of Jesus' disciples. Okay, so Herod kills uh, John and John is G one of Jesus' disciples. Now turn back to Luke and just go to chapter 13. And let me show you this, Luke chapter 13. 
verses 31 through 33. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. And uh, here's the second time we see Herod's attitude towards Jesus or his disciples. Verse 31, it says this. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here for Herod wants to what? Kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that Fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow on this day. I'll finish my course. So listen, Herod hates Jesus' disciples. Herod wants to kill Jesus. Luke chapter 23, where we are today, go back there, Luke chapter 23. We know that this is the third time that Herod um, kind of refers to Jesus or his disciples, but it's the first time that he ever meets Jesus. It's the first time that he ever meets Jesus. So now, Luke chapter 23, verse seven, Jesus is sent to who? Herod. Now, you have to understand this is the first time. He hates him. He killed one of his disciples. He wants to kill him. His dad tried to kill his Jesus uh, when he was a baby. Um, these men are evil. Uh, he's performing terrible things. He'd even do things to his own family. I mean, this is the man. Try to move fast because there's a lot of background you have to know to understand this situation. But this is an evil man. And so, um, and so this is who Jesus is going to. Now, as the trial continues, this is stage two of the Gentile trial. And remember, Jesus is now coming to this immoral, immoral perverter of, of justice. And uh, this family is full of sin and... Um, and so let me ask you this question. You think Jesus is gonna get a fair trial before Herod? Absolutely not. That's what Luke's trying to show you. I mean, this is the second one who Jesus is going to in this civil trial. There's not gonna be any justice here. This is an evil, immoral, unjust, perverted man who Jesus is going to. There will be no justice even here. There was none with Annas. There was none with Caiaphas. There was none with the Sanhedrin. There was none with Pilate. And there will not be with, any, with Herod. And so... There is no justice on the way to the cross. This is, this is the evil man, Herod. Now, Jesus, Luke is on his way to showing you Jesus' innocence because this is who's gonna try Jesus. Number two, we see the trial, very simple, eight through nine. Look at this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had longed to desire to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. <laughs> this man is crazy. This man is crazy. This man is out of his mind. He's a man who is full of sin. His family's full of sin. He killed one of Jesus's disciples. He looked to kill Jesus. His dad looked to kill Jesus. And he's in charge and Jesus comes to him and he's just so happy to see him. I mean, this is, this man here is, 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 is delusional. He, this, this man here is sadistic. This is, this is a crazy man who loves pleasure and he'll do whatever he can to get what he wants. We've already seen or understood the history of that. He long desired to see him because he had heard about him, hoping to see some sign by him. So he questioned him at length. <laughs> I mean, you're supposed to question him because you're supposed to look for justice. You're questioning him because you wanna know what's true and what's false, whether or not he committed any sin that he should be punished for whether or not he should go to prison or be killed for a crime against Rome. Not because you've got some weird desires and you want to satisfy yourself and you hate this man, but if he can, can kind of impress you, then maybe you can keep him around, put him on a leash and, and watch him perform signs day after day. I mean, he heard about him, so he longed to see him. He was very glad. I mean, think about this. This is, this is insanity. Imagine a mass murderer who does crazy things with his own family, and then he just comes here smiling about Jesus. 
Ten chapters ago, Jesus was told that Herod wanted to kill him. He killed John the Baptist, who was clearly connected with Jesus. His father sought to kill Jesus as a baby. This is a sinful, sick ruler, enamored by the spectacle of Christ. He has no intentions of believing in Christ, submitting to Christ, or holding justice. And he longs to see Jesus because he wants to see the signs done by Jesus. Verse nine, look at this. He questions him, but he makes no answer. So his excitement now, listen, listen, this is the trial. This is the extent of Herod's questioning of Jesus. Jesus is transferred over to this sick man. Luke is showing us Jesus's innocence. Luke is, Jesus is transferred over to the sick man. This is the extent of, of his trial. He's excited because he wants to see the spectacle of Christ and it gets soured because all he gets from Jesus is what? Silence. And this is shocking because someone who's being accused of committing such a crime, right? If he's accused of committing a crime like this, you would think that the prisoner would be, and there has been instances where the prisoner would just be begging to get out. But here's the deal. Jesus knows the outcome. He's submitting to the Father's will. Remember, the quote from Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, seven through eight, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth. He's like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. He opened out his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Verse nine, it says in Isaiah that his, gra his grave was made with the wicked, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I mean, what is being depicted here is Christ's innocence. He opens not his mouth. He opens not his mouth. And yet he is going to be treated like a criminal because he's going before unjust men who will not hold justice. He will be in the hands of evil men. Herod is not seeking the truth. Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He's dis Herod's dissatisfied with Jesus. Jesus knows he's not gonna win here either. Because you know what? When people are committed to believing lies about Christ, they're gonna remain committed. Jesus is not gonna win here, right? Either he's exactly what they want him to be or they're gonna kill him. And that's how many unbelievers are now. You go and share your faith with somebody and either Jesus, his word, his church, go down the list, is exactly what they want him to be or they're not gonna have him, right? But Jesus is who he is and we must accept who he is in order to be one of his disciples. And so Pilate sent him over, and this is the extent of Herod's questioning. Let's just finish this thing up. Here's the treatment, verse three, or number three. Verses 10 through 12. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each, each other that day before be before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So the trial just continues here, but there's now, uh, Luke is showing us the treatment. This is how Jesus is treated by what's supposed to be official trials. Verse 10, look at this. You got the chief priests and the scribes. They're standing there yelling accusations about him. So Herod's questioning him. Herod's weird and full of sin himself. And you got the Jews standing by and they're yelling things. Eutonos in the Greek, meaning forcefully, aggressively, assertively, fiercefully accusing Jesus. And it's the same thing that was happening while Pilate was, was with Jesus. The Jews are going to be sure to get the verdict. You see this, Jesus is innocent. 
This is not anything just. They're not proving anything about Christ. He's not sinned in any way. He's going before evil men. He has since the beginning of the trials, and they're just going to be sure that they get their way. They're going to insist. This is not the man that Herod expected. And so they're yelling things. Look at verses uh, 13 through 15 below that are not part of our text, right? Look at, look at this. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the peoples, and he said, you brought this man, this is when Jesus goes back to Pilate, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, I, behold, I, I did not find any, this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And verse 15, neither did what? Herod. He sends him back to us. Herod doesn't find anything wrong with him. The Jews are yelling, but Herod doesn't let him go, nor does he uphold justice. He, he, he didn't find anything wrong with him. But he, uh, far be it from believing in him. He doesn't care. It's just, he's just not impressive. And so he sends him back. But we see even there that you got the Jews, you got Herod. And Luke, at this point, is just making everything clear. Listen now. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, it says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrongdoing in connection with an offense that he has, that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three, what? witnesses shall a charge be established. You know what you have here? You have the witnesses, the evidence of two unbiased because, well, they're biased just in the other direction, two Gentile men who both say that Jesus is innocent. Why is Jesus not being let go at this point? Pilate and now Herod declare Jesus is innocent. Passive Pilate, Herod, the one who attempted to kill him, and yet these two sinful Gentile rulers along with the unbelieving Jews, are not letting Jesus go. And so Jesus at this point should not be in custody and he certainly should not be going to death. So the Jews are accusing him. Then look at what happens. You wanna see what Pilate does to him? Because uh, all hedonistic, I mean Herod, what all hedonistic Herod needs is a little bit of a spectacle, right? Verse 11, Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and did what? Mocked him. They're going to mock him. What are they going to do? Verse 12, I mean, uh, verse uh, 11, arraying him in splendid clothing. They were mocking him. So the soldiers, they just, they put Jesus to shame too. They put some clothing on him. They, they're accusing him. They're mocking him. He's innocent. He's not done anything wrong. The Jews say he's a blasphemer of God. The Gentiles are just not impressed. And so they're indifferent here. Verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends. He sent them back to Pilate. Verse 12, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. They had been at enmity with each other. I told you that uh, the Pilates replaced the Herods in southern Israel. That's one reason. Um, but also, um, we see in... in um, in Luke's account, we read it before that uh, Pilate actually um, mingled some of the um, so, some of the Jews' blood with their sacrifices and 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 killed. That that's Pilate for you, right? He he mingled some of the sacrifices of the Jews with um, um, with their. Um, their blood with their sacrifices. Luke chapter 13, verse one. There was some present who at the very time told him about, told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Herod also hates Pilate because Pilate stepped out of his jurisdiction, went up to northern Israel, killed some Galileans, mocked them by mingling their blood with their sacrifices. I mean, this is just, uh, this is terrible. And uh, Pilate hates him for those multiple reasons. But now they're friends because they got their same verdict about Christ and they're just gonna stand in their hatred of Christ and their hatred of the Jews and their appeal for their own positions of power. So listen now, Luke is clear here. Christ is an innocent sacrifice. He's innocent of all crimes. He's not done anything wrong. There is no justice here. Christ is innocent. And therefore, Luke is showing us through this gospel 
that this Christ is innocent and therefore his death was effective in being a substitute for sinners. Luke is taking every opportunity to make this clear before his death. He was an innocent substitute. He can affect salvation for those who would repent and believe. He counts, it counts, it counts. He's making the gospel clear and this should inform your Christology and it should make you love Christ, be committed to Christ, share Christ, worship Christ, obey Christ, believe in Christ for the first time so that you would even have salvation through his sacrifice. This is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come, we ask you, Lord, by your mercy, by your grace, to help some in this room today to believe this message, this innocent sacrifice will count on behalf of sinners because in your mercy, Christ will be a substitute for those who trust in him. And you will uphold your justice because you poured out your wrath upon him. Help us, God, to have this great understanding of Christ in our Christology and our belief about what the Bible says about him is that he is innocent. Let us believe that. Let us mean that that means so much to us because his, his death counts. In addition to that, Lord, help us then because of what we believe about Christ to be on fire for Christ, to be zealous, to be eager, to worship him, to follow him as the Lord, to trust in him with all of our mights because, it might, because it's the only way our sins are forgiven, to pray, to, to be conformed to his image. Some of us are in apathy or we are um, disobedient because we don't have a high enough view of Christ. Let us, Lord, see this picture that Luke is showing us. This was not a just trial. These are not just men. Luke is just making clear this is all a fabricated attempt to kill him. A political maneuver. Our, our Christ is innocent. And we pray, God, that this would affect us deeply in our hearts. Affect us deeply. Change us. Let us return to our first love. Let us make plans to share it with our neighbors. Let us gladly worship you, pray to you, read your word, tell our children about you. The innocent lamb of God who is slain for sinners. That's our Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us this great assurance that you have committed no sin and therefore your plan is in full effect.